All right, as we're talking about uh, Islam's plan to change the world, we've spoken about two of the three major prongs that they have. One of the prongs is the whole idea of uh, dawah, missions. The other prong that they have is jihad, which is armed conflict. Well, I believe that the third one is probably one of the more interesting of the prongs, and they've been very, very successful in this area. And that is the building of mosques. Now, we in Christianity have a certain missiological philosophy that's called a presence theology. And that means we can go into a country or into a place where there is no Christianity, and we may have one, two, three, four missionary couples, and they might build a little church, and we say we have a presence in that particular country. And then we feel as if that being a foothold in that country or a beachhead, then we can begin to grow step by step by step until that country basically becomes a, a, a Christian center. So we have very strongly the idea of a presence. Well, they have the same thing in Islam, where they believe that their building of mosques gives them a presence in a certain place. We have another interesting philosophy that was used by the Celts as they evangelized Europe. And what they would do in Europe is they would start at the top of a river, such as the Rhine River, and they would start right there at the uh, place where the river runs into the sea, and they would build a monastery. Then they would jump down maybe about 10 miles, and then they would build a church. Then they would go down another 10 miles down the river and build another church. Then they would go down another 10 miles and build a church and another monastery. And they kept going down the river until they had evangelized everybody on the river, and then they would spread out from that particular point. It's the same thing in California. We have a series of uh, various churches and missions going from the south all the way up to the north. For instance, we have uh, Santa Barbara, we have uh, San Rafael, we have San Francisco, and what the old Catholics would do is they would start down the south, they would build a mission, then they would go up and they'd build another mission, they'd build another mission, another mission, and then evangelize all around where they had built a mission. Well, the Muslims are doing much the same thing. They are building mosques, and they're building them at a very rapid rate today. There was a very famous movie that was made about an old baseball player that came back and apparently was talking to a, a man who was a farmer and told the man to build a baseball stadium. And uh, the man said, well, we're way out in the country. We can't build a baseball stadium. And the statement was made by this spirit force that said, if you build it, they will come. And sure enough, he built it. And the next thing they knew, everybody came to the baseball stadium. And I think the Muslims have this same concept. They will go into areas and they will build a mosque where there are not that many Muslims, but they want it to be a, a sign that they are on the move. They want it to be a presence theology. They want people to know that they're coming, and consequently they are building a very large number of mosques today. Well, what, what is the function of the mosque for, for the Muslims? Uh, one of the things that they do, it, it is their, their place and their center of worship. But again, it's important for us to realize and to recognize that in Islam, there is no separation of church, state, social action, society. They are all together. So in the mind of a Muslim, once that mosque has been built, 
That provides for them a, a city hall. It provides for them a, a business center. It is their place of social action. That's where they give out all of the, the social goods, whether it be food or clothing. That's where they worship. It is the center of their, of their activity, and it is the center of their life. So the mosque has a more important uh, place in, in the life of a Muslim than, let's say, a Christian church would have. In fact, the Muslims are always very interested in the fact that, that we, as Christians, uh, we don't go to church that often. Probably the most least used building in any society in America today is the church. They will be used on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and maybe for a few other activities, but by and large, it's, it's empty. I've even had some people that have talked to me about why it is that missionaries are not very uh, much accepted in Muslim countries. And one Muslim came along and he says, well, you've just got to remember and realize that, that a, a Muslim looks at his mosque and looks at his imam totally different than a Christian does. And he gave me some examples. He said, for instance, a missionary comes and he says, I am a Christian missionary. And by the word, by the way, the word for missionary in the uh, Arabic language is probably about as bad a cuss word as you can get. You use that word, and as soon as a Muslim hears it, it's not a nice word at all. But they say, well, well you know, you've got these missionaries. But, but what do they do? Well, the reason why they, they don't really appreciate them is because of a series of things. For instance, they say, your, your missionaries all wear the same clothes everybody else does. Whereas our imams will wear special clothes. You, you will know who an imam is. You don't know who a missionary is. Second, an imam will tell everybody that he is an imam. Whereas we have a large number of CIA Christians in the world today who are there as business people, and they're not willing to let people know that they're, they're, they're Christians, and they won't even let them know that they're pastors, so they, they have a problem with that. Number two, they never see him pray, whereas in a mosque, you see the imam pray all the time. He's always praying. Five times a day, he's praying. He's even in prayer. We never see a Christian missionary pray. They don't pray. The, the imam is always in the mosque, whereas the Christian missionary is not always in the church. So they have some problems with that. They, they, see, they see the mosque as being really the center of who they are. We had one interesting uh, event happen down in uh, Yemen. We had a hospital in Yemen. In fact, we had one of our women doctors and uh, a woman helper and, and a man helper shot, oh, about four or five years ago when a uh, uh, terrorist came in and killed them because they were upset that we had a hospital there. But um, in, in, in that hospital, they had had a legal case against the hospital. And our hospital didn't even know about it until the thing was over with. But what they did is some people said, we've got to get these Christians out of our country. And so they had this legal case. They had all these people that were testifying against the Christians and against the hospital. And there was one man that was there, and he, he recited this. He said that there was a couple of young men that came, and he said, these Christians are pagans. And one of the things they do in their churches... They have one of their ways of worshiping their God in their churches is that the ladies will totally be nude and they will do dances for their God in the church. 
Well, when we heard that, we thought, now, wait a minute, just a second. Most of these accusations have some basis for support, but we don't know where they got that. You know, are women dancing nude to God in the church? So we started doing some study, and we finally found out what it was, and it was this, that in Yemen, we can't have churches. It's against the law, but there was an oil company that had a large complex there in the city of Jibler, the capital city, and they had an auditorium. And so we needed to have some place to worship, so we worshiped in their auditorium at this particular place, which was normal, and they were very kind and generous, and they allowed us to worship. Well, it so happened on Thursday night, they had an aerobics class for the women. So the women came in these very tight clothes, and they were doing it in the same place where the church was. So these people saw them, and they said, they are in the church, they're dancing nude before God, this is heathen worship. So, so you got the idea that I can see where they could get that because to them, the mosque is the mosque. It is the center of worship. It's the place where they come for everything. It used to be that in the old mosque, they would also build little uh, uh, buildings on the side of it. And these were their places where they would do their business. And so the mosque is, is the center of, of, their, of their thinking and their thoughts. Now, as these mosques began to develop, they pretty well stayed with their, with their architecture. And their architecture is primarily a round architecture. In most cases, not all six or eight sides. They will always have almost exactly the same architecture. They will have um, the, the uh, place where they worship will face to, uh, to Mecca. They will always have a place where the pastor will go and will preach. They'll always have a little table off on the side that they will use for their um, five times a day praying and where a devotion is given. They will never have a chair. Uh, you will always sit down on the ground. Uh, then they will have a place downstairs or outside where you will wash your feet and wash your hands and wash the back of your head and your ears and your nose. And they, they have it all worked out. So, so a mosque is pretty well universal. Uh, you have some very beautiful mosques being built today. Their architecture is stunning, to say the least. They, they are very good at their architecture. And, of course, they don't have uh, pictures or of, of animals or of human beings. And, consequently, they have a beautiful uh, uh, form for their mosques. And I think that they need to be congratulated for that. Now, one of the things that they have felt that they needed to do was to build mosques in as many places as they possibly can. And so since about 1990, they have gone on a building spree to build mosques. As I said before, in London, England, there are now 682 mosques in the city of London. There are now 1,500 mosques in the country of Germany. From, one, from the year 1,098, 1998, until the year uh, 2004, they had built 600 new mosques in Germany. They are now building 700 new mosques in Germany. And everywhere you go today, there are new mosques that are being built. In many cases, where there are very few people that are living, but they feel like once that mosque has been built, then that presents a presence. And they feel as if from that point on, that it will spread out and that they will be able then to claim that area for for their God. So so mosques are being built everywhere. Uh, 
Again, the, the architecture style stays pretty much the same. Once you see a building going up and it looks like a mosque, it will be a mosque. They invariably will have the dome on it, and, and that, that begins to be an important part of who they are. Now, they look with disdain upon the church. And again, as they come along and they say the mosque is a positive factor in a society, a church is a negative factor in a society. So not only do they try to build mosques, but they also try to destroy churches. The next time you read about some type of a uh, aggressive engagement taking place, let's say in northern part of Nigeria or in Indonesia or in Malaysia or just about anywhere in the world, read the whole article through because it will say something like this. There was a uh, uh, an act of violence that was committed and the Christians and the Muslims fought with each other in this particular city and uh, so many Muslims were killed and so many Christians were killed and the government came in and stopped them. And then the last two sentences will say, and ten churches were burned down, or five churches were burned down. Why? They want to destroy churches. They want to get rid of churches. Why? Because they see the churches as being not only a a presence, but they see it as being a negative effect uh, where they're at. So they they, they have a tendency to, to destroy churches. You can go to any one of these countries where they have taken it over, such as Sudan, or maybe one of the better examples is Turkey. Uh, I was uh, given the task of going into Turkey and of finding out how we as Southern Baptists could best develop a strategy for winning Turkey for the Lord. And so I went in there and I made a study in all of the different cities of Turkey trying to find out the best way for us to get in. And it was mentioned to me that if there is a church and the church is in existence or the church building is in existence, that we can continue to use that church building uh, for a, a, a church. But if it's been destroyed, no. And so I said, if we have a destroyed church, is it possible, if nothing's been built on it, that we can build a church on it? He said, you might ask. So I went down to Turkey, and sure enough, there were about four Anglican churches that we were able to identify in some of the major cities. And so I went to each one of these churches and the, the government officials to see whether or not we could rehabilitate and use this church. In every instance, they said, no, you cannot use it. We will not let you use the church. And in one instance, we went down and they said, we just turned it into a, a meeting place for the city. You may not use it, so we had no success at all. But what I did notice that in all over the countryside, particularly in the eastern part of, um, of Turkey, there were ruins on hilltops. And there'd be a ruin of, of, of something. I'd say, what's that? Well, that used to be an uh, Armenian church. That used to be an Armenian church. That used to be an Armenian church. And so I got the idea, well, if these used to be Armenian churches, maybe we can go in and rebuild that as a church and, and, and have a place of worship in this particular area. I immediately discovered that's not possible, and they told me this very flatly. They said, no, you cannot rebuild a church that has been destroyed. And then I said, is it possible for me to tear down the ruins and maybe build something else there? No, you can't build down the ruins. Why? The ruins are standing as proof to our people that Christianity is in ruins, and the new mosque being built is proof to the people that uh, Islam is growing. 
So they, they take great pride in the ruins of churches, but they will not allow us to build any other churches. The destruction of churches. I had the opportunity of going to Egypt one time and to preach a revival in the Baptist church in, in Cairo, Egypt. And when I went there, they had a, a very large building. The building was large enough for five, 600 people. It was built by a shoe, a man that had a shoe factory by the name of Maxi Yarman. He was very well known about 30, 40 years ago. His shoes were, were the best sellers and he was very successful. A very deep, dedicated Christian. Well, prior to the Second World War, Egypt was under the leadership or the control of England, and so it was allowed for us to build this church there in England. So we built it. 600 places, it was very nice. We had pews and kind of banks on the pews, and it was a very nice place. Well, I went there, and I was preaching there probably about the year 2000, and I got there, and the first night that I preached in this particular church, I uh, noticed that the walls were stained and I noticed that the carpet had holes in it. I noticed that the uh, the banks where the people were sitting on were, were in terrible shape. It was very dirty. There were little holes in the window. The doors were kind of falling off the door jams. And in, in one word, it, it was destruction. The church was in very, very poor shape. So after I preached that first night, I went to the pastor and I said, Pastor, I'll tell you what I can do. I've got contacts in Europe and in America I'll go back, and I will bring 50 men here. And I will bring painters and carpenters, business people, and we will spend two weeks, and we will totally renovate your church. We'll make it look nice again. We will paint it. We will do everything that needs to be done, and it won't cost you a dime. We'll do this all on our own. The pastor said, you can't do that. And I said, oh, yes, I can. Just give me the opportunity. I can do it. He said, no, you don't understand. It's against the law. I said, what do you mean? He said, we may not repair our church in any way whatsoever without written permission from the president of the country, and we cannot get it. You can do no repair at all. So here is this Christian church falling into disrepair. You cannot repair it. Down the street, they're building a brand-new mosque. And this is all a part of their strategy. The mosque will be built. The Christian churches will go into despair. Uh, they have one other church there. It was a Coptic church in Cairo. And about two weeks before I was there, they had this big cross. And the wind blew the cross over. And the cross gave, made a great big uh, hole in the um, roof and ceiling of this, of this Coptic church. The government said, you cannot repair that hole. The hole must stay. And so the rain would come in. Why? You cannot repair a church. Uh, about three days after I finished the revival in Cairo, I went down to the south, and I went to a small Baptist church, and they had a building, and in the front they had a wall oh, about the size of this bookcase, and in this wall they had this great big hole. It was about a meter wide, and, and I thought, that's strange, because you could stand outside and look inside and see the people worshiping. And I thought, you know, this is rather unusual, so I talked to the pastor, I said, Pastor, what type of theology do you have that allows you to have a hole there so that people can look in? Is that the people that have not yet been baptized stand outside and look in? Why do you do that? He says, no. He says, we used to have a little window there. 
and the window had a wood framing, and the wood framing was rotting. So he went and got a little bit of blue paint and painted this framing of the of the window. The police found out about it. They came and they ripped the framing out and the window out, and they left the hole, and they said, you may not replace that window, that hole must stay. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to, to destroy churches. They're trying to see that the churches will not be built. Uh, as best as I can determine at this particular point, that I'm having a hard time finding out if there are probably within the last the last 10, uh, 12 years, there's probably been about 30,000 new mosques that have been built. The number of mosques in America, I have lost track of the number being built here. I know more or less what they're being built in Europe. Uh, Dearborn just recently opened a brand new mosque, two mosques. Just about in every place that I've turned, there are new mosques that are being built. We even used to have a, a Baptist church in Mill Valley up here to the north of where we're at. And, and this church was... Uh, uh, having some problems. It was a steer road Baptist church and they were having some problems. So they decided to disband and they decided to sell the church. And so they, they sold the church and a man came forward and says he wants to use it for uh, a place to uh, store some, some furniture. So we sold it to him. And then two months later, it became the Islamic center for, for Mill Valley. And so it became a, 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 a mosque. It was fascinating because the thing was, was turned a certain way, but what they had to do, they had to face Mecca, and Mecca was catacorned, so they didn't have any problem. They just built a few walls, changed it around a little bit, and, and it's now now a mosque. And what was fascinating to me was that it was in this mosque, there used to be a Baptist church, that this Frank Lynn, the man that was the American Taliban, was converted to Islam and got his radical Islamic views in this mosque that used to be a Baptist church. So they they, they are doing everything they can to change churches. And uh, they, they, they are not opposed to, to buying churches if they can and, and changing them, and they're doing this quite a bit. One of the things that they also do with mosques is they want the mosque to be bigger and larger than any Christian church that is in their vicinity. If you go to Algeria today, it's not Algeria, it's in the Morocco and you go to Tangiers in Morocco, you will see that there is a large hill overlooking the city. And up there on that hill, there is a large uh, Catholic uh, cathedral. Very beautiful, two towers. It's a beautiful building. Right next to that building, you will find a new mosque. And that mosque will be one and a half times as tall as the Christian church is and twice as large as the Christian church. That is no mistake. They will find these Christian churches, and then they will build a church that will be larger. I was in Venezuela one time, and I said, are there any mosques in Caracas? And it just so happened that right across the street from where I was in my hotel, here was a, a, a big mosque. And uh, I noticed, and right next to that mosque was a, a little Christian church. And the mosque was twice as tall, and it was twice as big as as the uh, church was. Why? They they want them to be built larger. You go up there to uh, Dearborn and the big mosque that they recently built there. They've got three churches, one church, one church, one church, and the mosque. The mosque is probably the same size as all of them put together. They They want the mosque to be the biggest and the most impressive that they can possibly be, and they, they've been quite successful on that. 
Uh, it's very interesting when you go to the, the Holy Land. And I don't know about Bethlehem. Somebody has told me that they have built a mosque right next to the church that was used for to celebrate the birth of Jesus. I can't confirm that, but I can confirm that up in Nazareth, where they had, where Mary had received the angel and the talk from the angel that said that um, she is going to bear the forth the Lord, that the Catholics had built a very large, beautiful church over that particular point. I've been in that church many times. Well, right next to it, they're building a mosque. And what they did is they cleared out the whole area, and the government of Israel said, you cannot build a mosque here. And they said, we're going to build a mosque. So they went ahead and they laid the foundation. The government says, you can't build this mosque. And they said, okay. They started putting the wall up, and you can't build this mosque. And every time the government said, you can't do it, they'd have a demonstration, and they would have all this uproar in the center of the city. And and the Christians said, they're building it. Well, before you know it, the mosque will be built. And when the mosque is built, it will be larger and more beautiful than will the Christian church. They are doing this on purpose. You can go up into Germany, and, and this is happening over and over again in certain towns where they are building brand-new mosques that are again large. They were going to build a mosque in Rome, and they submitted a plan to the Italian government whereby the mosque that they were going to build in Rome was going to be taller and larger than St. Peter's. And uh, they, they, they uh, presented their plan, and the government says, no way, you can't build that big a mosque. And, of course, they cried and said, you know, prejudiced, and you're, you're not being fair, the Christian want to build a church, and all these other things. Well, they finally allowed them to build their mosque. It's only one-fourth the size of St. Peter's. But uh, I have read some writings by some of their uh, imams in that part that said the day will come where they will build their large mosque. They still have the plans, and it will be larger than St. Peter's, and it will be taller than St. Peter's. So they they feel as if the size and the grandeur of the mosque is very important as a proof to the world that they really are, are growing. Well, what about, what about the financing of these mosques? How do they do that? Well, one of the things that they do is they, they, they do a little bit like what we do. The people themselves will pay for the mosque to be built. They will collect money. They will try and do all that they can to, um, to get the funds coming in. But by and large, the majority of the money is coming primarily from the Muslim World League and other organizations that are basically very wealthy. Let me give you an idea, if you may. Uh, think a little bit about this. And uh, I haven't thought lately about exactly how this works out, but let me try as much as I can. Do you realize that um, in, in Saudi Arabia, and let me talk only about Saudi Arabia. I don't want to talk about, uh, I don't want to talk about uh, Iraq, Iran, Brunei, the Arabic, the uh, Emirates, uh, Libya, or any other country, only Saudi Arabia, and and talk about their financing that they are giving to the Muslim World League. Now you've got to remember that Saudi Arabia today is uh, pumping approximately ten million barrels of oil a day. Ten million. It used to be eight million, and then Bush went to them and said, "We need more oil." 
in Saudi Arabia said, well, you're our friends. We like you very much. We will increase it to to 10 million. So they're, they're, they're uh, drilling and pumping 10 million barrels of oil. I have a statement from the oil minister of Saudi Arabia where he says, it costs us $1 for each barrel of oil to pump it out of the ground and to deliver it to the ships that are waiting for it. $1. So that means that if they get, let's say, $41 for each barrel of oil, they clear $40 on a barrel of oil. Well, as you know, the price of oil, when I wrote my book, the price of oil was about $40. Then it went up to $150. Now it's back down to $40. It's gone back up. So let me just use the um, the $40 mark. That that would be all right. Let's just assume then that a barrel of oil costs $40. And that means that they are pumping 10 million barrels of oil a day. Multiply that out sometimes, and that comes up to $400 million. So the the government receives $400 million uh, every day on just the sale of oil, $400 million. Now, you've got to understand that Islam is not separate from government. You don't separate the religion from government. It is a, a total uh, working together of government, society, all aspects of, of their life are brought together. So the government comes along, and I can pretty well prove that they give at least one-fourth of their oil money for the furtherance of Islam in the world today. One-fourth of their money for the furtherance of Islam in the world. Now, don't forget, we're not talking about the businesses. We're not talking about any other aspect of business life. We're talking only about the oil money. That means that they receive approximately $100 million a day for the furtherance of Islam. I was a missionary for a mission society called the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, now the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And um, they have 7,000 missionaries. They have 42,000 volunteers. They have hospitals, Bible schools, clinics, all around the world. They are in 150 different countries of the world. And their budget for one year is $300 million. The Muslims get that in three days. In three days. And then they go on day after day after day. So if you begin figuring out the amount of money that they have available for their strategic work to change the world for Islam, they are very very wealthy. And they are using their funding very effectively. Now, if you think about $100 million a day, you'd be surprised how many mosques you can build with $100 million a day. And when you multiply that times 365, you get just the beginning of an idea of, of how, how well they're doing and how many things that they're able to accomplish. So their mosques have, have been an important part of their strategy, their presence, they are there, their existence, and they are, are being successful. Well, as you go and you look at the mosque and, and where they're being built, as I said once before, everywhere that I go, I see mosques being built. It's just an amazing phenomenon. Now, I have no idea where we are here in Southern, Southern California, what is being built 
but uh, I was in Germany not too long ago in a place called Schweinfurt, and I spoke about the building of the mosque, and they said, Brother Wagner, do you know that right down here across from our city hall, the Muslims have brought something about five acres, and they're building one large mosque right across the street from us. Very, very impressive. Well, there are some mosques, other mosques around the world today. If you ever see a picture of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, they are now building a building right next to the Grand Mosque in Mecca. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that the total number of people that they can take in this Grand Mosque is somewhere around 800,000 people at one time in the Grand Mosque. But right behind the Grand Mosque on the mountain, they are now building the world's largest building, the world's largest building, and it's going to be a part of the mosque. And so with the world's largest building and the world's largest mosque put together, you begin to get an idea of the, the immensity and the size of the mosque that they have. You, you have some other very fascinating mosques around. You have one of them in, in Spain, Cordova. Now, they like to take churches and convert churches to mosques. In a few places, we have mosques that have become churches. By the way, one of the largest mosques in Turkey is St. Sophia, which used to be a Christian church, and now it is a mosque. And so they, they have no qualms about turning it, and actually it became a museum again. They turned it from a mosque into a museum. Uh, then in Cordoba, Spain, we have one of the best examples of a mosque that's been turned into a, a church, and the uh, Muslims have been very, very unhappy about that. And uh, recently, many of these Muslim groups have been coming every 15 minutes, and they've been entering the cathedral, and they've been prostrating themselves on the floor in front of the altar, and they are shout uh, shouting, Alua Akbar, Alua Akbar. Then they kick them out, and another group comes in and does the same thing, and the people are having a few problems uh, in, in this mosque over there at this point. We had another fascinating little mosque in a place called Abacu, New Mexico. And this was in the early 1980s when they, they built this one. And I was a, a young person in, in, in New Mexico, and I heard about this mosque at Abacu. And Abacu is, is just to the right of nowhere. I mean, it's, it's in the center of nothing. There's nothing up there, but they have a huge mosque. And we kept saying, why do you have this huge mosque? So not too long ago, I decided to make a, my little pilgrimage and trek up there. I had a hard time getting in, and, and finally when I got in, I discovered that really what it was, it was not only a mosque, but it was also a training center for, for Muslims to do dawah in the United States. And it's been there for probably about 30 or 40 years, but um, it's there today. Well, they talk about mosques in, in the United States. Uh, they, they are growing, and uh, with the growth of these mosques, they are winning people. And uh, in 2001, they made a report of the mosques in the United States. And I thought it might be interesting as you to look at this and to uh, see it. Uh, there was a uh, press conference, the National Press Conference in uh, the Nas National Press Club in Washington, D.C., and the council outlined some of their major findings in the survey. And this is what they said. There is tremendous growth both in the number of mosques and the number of those who take part in mosque activities. On the average, there are more than 1,625 Muslims associated in some way 
with the religious life of each mosque. So one mosque, 1,625 people associated to that mosque. The average attendance on as, at Friday prayer meeting is 292. Some 2 million American Muslims are associated with the mosque. Report findings support conservative estimate of a total American population of 7 million. One thing that I'm going to talk about later on is that uh, the Muslims have a great tendency to exaggerate and over-exaggerate. A lot of times you'll see they have a certain number and and you know you're impressed by that. But as we've really made a study of, of some of the numbers that they give out, we feel like they're exaggerating. And I believe that number of 7 million of Muslims in America is probably exaggerated. The number of participants has increased by more than 25% of mosques during the past five years. Growth is across the board, but suburban mosques have experienced the greatest increase. Conversion rates are steady. On average, nearly 30% of mosque participants are converts. So that means that 30% of the people that are involved in the mosque in America today are converts. I would say that few of those would be, let's say, Anglo or, 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 or typical Hispanic families, uh, but there, there is a growth. Mosques are relatively young. 30% of all mosques were established in the 1990s, and 32% were founded in the 1980s. So I would say that probably 90% of all the mosques in America have been founded since uh, 1980. Four-fifths of the mosques are located in a metropolitan area, most often in a city neighborhood. Remember, I made the statement uh, several lectures ago that Islam is growing in the urban areas, and most of the mosques are placed in the urban areas because that is where they have their growth. On an average mosque, in an average mosque, 30% are members are of South Asian origin, Indian, Pakistan, Bangladesh, etc. 30% are African-American, and 25% are from Arabic-speaking uh, world. So that means that about a third of all the people in the mosque today are African-Americans. Now, you have to remember that the nation of Islam, Farrakhan's group, in, in many ways is not considered to be an orthodox Muslim organization. It's it is pretty well on the outside. And also the nation of Islam is not growing all that much at this particular point. So when it talks about the people attending the mosque who are African Americans, it is talking primarily about people who are Orthodox Muslims. One thing that I think that we as Christians need to do in in the United States, and let me just say we as white Christians, because I, I am white as such, I believe that we need to give much more support to our black churches and our, our black pastors and the people that are black. We've kind of let them go. We've kind of isolated them. And uh, they're losing many of their people to Islam. And we need to give them support. We can't allow this to continue. Uh, we have to find ways to give them support and to help them because I think that they really, really do need it. Most mosques are involved in some kind of outreach activities. 
During the past 12 months, a majority of moths have done each of the following activities. Visited a school or a church to present Islam, contacted the media, contacted a political leader, and participated in an interfaith dialogue. So most of the people attending have done one of these things. That just shows that the average person in a mosque is very actively involved in what we would call outreach or evangelism. And they are contacting the media, and they are contacting churches, and they are going to schools. So they they are very active. Almost 70% of mosques provide some type of assistance to the needy. As I said before, the mosque is the place where they distribute this money. Now, they all have to pay a, a tax of approximately 2% of their salary to the mosque to help the needy. So they do have financial help, and they do help the people. But again, the only people that they help are their own people. They do not help others. More than 20% of the mosques have a full-time school. Almost every mosque that I visited recently does have a full-time school. More than 90% of respondents agree that Muslims should be involved in American institutions and should participate in the political process. Uh, enough said about that. I think that they, they have very definite ideas. They want to see the, uh, the uh, Islamic faith growing in the United States, and they have no problems with entering into the political fray. I thought it was of great interest to me when uh, they had the first man who was a Muslim that was elected to the House of Representatives of the United States. And so he said, I'm going to make my oath, not on the Bible, but on the Koran. And so they said, well, what, what Koran? And he said, well, I'm going to get a Koran from Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson had a Koran, and Thomas Jefferson believed in the Koran, so I'm going to have my oath on Thomas Jefferson's Koran, which he did have. And so I thought to myself, Thomas Jefferson's Koran? Did, did he have contact with Muslims? And uh, I, I, I had uh, some problems with that. So I decided to do some study to find out just exactly what was the source of this Koran that, that uh, Thomas Jefferson had. And I discovered that Thomas Jefferson was also the ambassador of the United States to France. And while he was an ambassador to France, there was a tremendous problem in the Mediterranean, both on the French side and the North African side. And, of course, France had dominion over much of that North African part, and they had all of these pirates. And these pirates were Muslim pirates that were taking over shipping in that area. In fact, if you think about the, the Marine Corps song, uh, from the shores of Tripoli to the halls of Montezuma, the shores of Tripoli, that, that was where all these pirates were taking place, and we had to send Marines over there to stop the pirates. Well, when Thomas Jefferson was, was ambassador to France, he said, what is this Islamic religion? Who are these pirates? So he ordered a, a, a Quran so he could read it, so he could understand the pirates better. But he never did really become a Muslim or was never really influenced by that. But in the political system today, we find that we now have our first man who is a member of the House of Representatives. You go into Belgium, and as I said before, 
they feel like Belgium and the Netherlands are going to be the first two countries to uh, to become uh, Muslim. Very fascinating. One of the uh, but no, more of the members of Parliament in Belgium are Muslims today. We have in Germany three parties. We have the Red Party, which is the Socialists. We have the Black Party, which is the Christian, primarily the Catholic Party. And then we have the Green Party. And these are three main parties in, in Germany. Well, the uh, man that now is the head of the Green Party, together with another person, there's two heads, is a Muslim. And they said this is the first time that there has been a Muslim head of one of the major parties in Germany. I can guarantee you that as time goes on, there is going to be an increase in political activity uh, by, by the Muslims in the Western world. In general, mosque leadership does not appear to be highly formalized or bureaucratic. If you know very much about the, the way that they choose their imams, it is, it is to a small degree a, a democratic way, but, but these imams are, are chosen on their piety, on, on their conviction and their commitment to Islam, and I think you have to give them credit on that. And one of the things that it's always been a little bit difficult for me to understand is that most imams that I have talked to, and I don't know what percentage of imams in the world this, this would be true with, but most of the imams that I've talked to have memorized the uh, Quran. They have memorized the whole Quran. I have trouble with my kids in the seminary classes where I say, okay, you have to memorize 20 verses during this class, and they throw their arms up and they say, we can't do that, that's too much. But, but these imams memorize the whole Quran, and uh, that, that is a sign of, of piety and a sign of commitment, and you, you've got to honor them for that. But uh, another fact that I, I have trouble with and uh, I've talked to three different imams, and people have said this is the case, but I still can't understand how this works. It, it, it is a total problem to me. And that is that these guys have said, we have memorized the Quran. In what language do you memorize it? In Arabic. You only memorize it in Arabic. You don't memorize it in any other language. You only memorize it in Arabic. And then I say to these guys, how long have you known Arabic? Oh, I don't know Arabic. Can you speak Arabic? No, I can't speak Arabic. Can you understand Arabic? No, I don't understand Arabic. And so I say, how can you memorize the Quran in Arabic and not know Arabic? I've never gotten a good answer for that. But I've had three of these people say, I don't know Arabic, but I've memorized in Arabic. So it's just a rote memory and nothing more than that. But in many cases, these imams are, are extremely dedicated men. They uh, spend their time. They, they are married in most cases. They, uh, they, they have a family. In Germany, most of the imams are uh, Turkish people. And what they do is they will send the people from different mission organizations in Turkey up to Germany. In most cases, they won't know any German. And they will spend three years, four years, five years in Germany. Then they will go back to Turkey and somebody else will come and take their place. And uh, one person said they do that because they don't want the, the imams to get too acculturated into the Germanic situation because there, there may be some dangers in their faith at that point. Um, 
in a majority of mosques, final decision-making authority rests not with the leader, but with the Marji Ashura Executive Committee or Board of Directors. So that means that the imam is not the final authority, but they have somebody else ahead of them. I don't have any problems with that because I worked with the Christians in, in Germany so long that in every Baptist church they have what they call a pastor and a church leader, Gemeinde Prediger and Gemeinde uh, Leiter. And the, the leader of that church is a Gemeinde, is a church leader. It's not never the pastor because they said the pastor comes and goes, but the church leader stays. So the final authority in a Baptist church in, in Germany is the church leader. And it's the same way in a mosque in, uh, in Islam that it is the man that is the head of the executive committee of the board of directors that makes the final decision. In most mosques with a board, women are allowed to serve as members of the board. So women can serve as members of the board. They can be on, on that leadership but at the same time, they are never allowed to go into the worship service. They must always stay outside. And in every mosque that I visited, they either have a uh, a wall from the very back where the women can go, or in some cases in Washington, D.C., they have a balcony, and then they have a veil up there, and they the women cannot see down, but they can hear, but they cannot be a part of it. And... In most cases, the women just simply don't go to the mosque because they, they are considered to be second-class citizens. I asked one person one time why it was that women could not go to the mosque, nor why it was that women could not uh, come into the back and sit in the back. And the guy gave me a very practical answer. He said, because when the men bend down to pray, we don't want the women to look at their rear side. I thought, well, that's... That's probably one of the reasons. But uh, they they have this system, whereas the mosque is primarily for the males and um, for nobody else. Well, again, as we, we make a conclusion, let me give you several points of, of the conclusion. Number one, the mosque in Islam is more than just a building. It is the center of community. And it has many, many uses. Two, the physical presence represented by the mosque is very important to those who are planning the strategies for Islam's growth. In many instances, that is the first move that they make into a new area. They will build the mosque and then they will begin to bring the people around. Three, large amounts of money is being invested in the building of mosques not only in Muslim countries, but also in Western areas. One thing I failed to mention earlier was this, that they are building thousands of mosques in the Western world. But do you know how many Christian churches have been built in the Muslim countries in the last 25 years? Zero. Now there is in, uh, I believe it's uh, Kuwait, or one of those countries down there where they have a center, kind of a community center where they allow churches to meet in that. That has been built recently, but it definitely is not a church. As I understand it, that when the uh, king of Saudi Arabia spoke with the Pope, he 
said we might allow there to be a Catholic church built in in Saudi Arabia. But uh, since that time, I've heard that he received so much criticism from his uh, religious leaders that 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 probably will never take place. So there are no churches being built. Uh, The last one that I know of was a church in Kabul in Afghanistan. And um, they decided that they wanted to build a church there for their English-speaking community because, you know, the English-speaking community lived there, they worked there, and so they had a church. And the church was was fairly active and doing quite well, so they they decided they wanted to build a church. So they went to the planning department and said, we want to build a church, and it's going to be so large. And it was a nice church, a good-looking church, and they went ahead and they built the church. And as they got the church all finished, they decided that what they were going to do was to put a cross up at the top. And they put a cross at the top, and that so infuriated the government officials if they got a bulldozer, they went and they just tore the whole thing down. And they said, never again will there be a Christian church built in Kabul. They never even used the church before they bulldozed it. So these are some of the problems that you run into. Um, the next point as a conclusion, the burning of churches and the building of mosques go hand in hand within the overall Muslim strategy. You know, as I was talking about the destruction of churches, I was in Indonesia one time when they had a uh, problem in the government. The vice president, a lady called Megawati, wanted to become the president of the country, but she was only the vice president. So she challenged the president and basically said, I'm going to take over. And the president said, no, you're not. Well, there was, there was a problem. There was some stress. And so uh, there was going to be this big discussion, and, and we didn't know what was going to happen. So the police came out on the street, and the military came out, and everybody was ready for the worst. Well, they got in there, and the president says, okay, I'll step down, and Megawati took over. And both of them were strong Muslims. And, everything to do. and um, they uh, destroyed three Christian churches in Jakarta. And I asked an imam one time, why did you destroy three Christian churches? We were Christians. We had nothing to do with this. This was your own political party. Eh. Good opportunity to get rid of a couple more churches was their response. So they are destroying churches, and don't forget, they, they will continue that. New mosques reflect the architecture of the host country, but still retain the traditional forms from the Middle East. And when you see a mosque, you, you will become aware of the fact that Islam is a culture, it is a society, it is a structure, it is a religion, and it is bent on the destruction of the Western culture. It is built to destroy the Western society, and it is very, very definitely bent on the destruction of the Christian church in the West today. I believe we must be very careful, and we must be on guard and we must prepare ourselves. And the only way that we can do that is to turn to Jesus Christ and to let Jesus Christ dominate our thinking, our work, what we do. The thing that they are most afraid of in the Islamic world are true believing Christians. God bless.